Um, as I said before, uh, we are continuing in Mark chapter 14. We're going to begin, if you're getting one of these Bibles, it's on page 497. Hopefully there's a bookmark, but if not, 497. Uh, so this is Mark 14. We're going to begin in verse 53 through the end of the chapter. Um, let us give our attention to God's perfect word. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? We've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a sad time. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand why this is recorded for us and for our good, for our instruction and for our comfort. Help us, Lord Jesus. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Did you know that lying takes serious thought? Do you know that? Neuroscientists did a study at Temple University, and the Chicago Tribune wrote about this. This is a quote from that study. With brain imaging technology, they can see how a lie sparks activity deep in the limbic system. The center of emotion and self-preservation. The lie gathers support from the memory banks in the left and right temporal lobes 
and then makes a dash to the frontal cortex where a decision is made to, dis- to suppress what the brain knows to be true. Isn't technology amazing? So some researchers think maybe eventually this could replace the polygraph lie detector test. Who knows? That, that article came out um, 18 years ago. I've read other articles and research. They've continued to do research on what the brain tells us about lying. It's quite fascinating. It's very expensive. Kids, so don't expect your parents to stick you in any uh, fMRI anytime soon. But nonetheless, we see in that study, actually, this, the doctor, Scott F. Farrow, says, lying is a complex behavior. There's much more activity and more interactions that occur during a lie than in truth-telling. Self-preservation can be a powerful motivator to lie, can't it? So in our story, we have a bunch of lies, don't we? We have the Jewish religious leaders, they're lying. Then Peter, he's lying for self-preservation. Today, um, you look on page seven, you, you see the outline. The title is Encountering Christ Courageously Facing Rejection. How does trusting Christ, this is a question we're answering, how does trusting Christ enable us to willingly accept rejection? Three answers there. Trusting Christ enables us to let go of control, to let go of self-protection, and enables us to have Christ-eternal perspective. Since we're going this morning, look at that first one. Trusting Christ enables us to let go of control. I don't know if you've ever watched a young child fight for control. How young does a child learn the words no and mine? Pretty young, right? That's my toy. Give it back. Right? No, I don't want to do that. Right? They want to have control. What do they do when they don't have it? They scream, right? And sometimes, unfortunately, it works. And they get back their control. Well, we see this with the religious leaders. They, they had all the power, right? And Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus threatened their power. They loved having all this. So we see this in Matthew 23. This is Jesus. He says, this is they, the religious leaders. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the places of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues, and the greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. They just loved it. They soaked it all in, right? This is great. And so Jesus come, comes, and he often confronts them, doesn't he? He often calls them, you're hypocrites. Well, they didn't like that, right? They were, he was a threat to them. So from the very, very beginning, they didn't like him. They were looking for a way to get rid of him. Look, we've been going through Mark. Jump, if we were to look all the way back at chapter 3, it says this. 3.6 says, The Pharisees went out after he had confronted them and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So all the way back in chapter 3, the, his whole ministry, they've been looking for a way to destroy him and they've hated him. Hated all he's doing great miracles and then confronting them. Both were a threat to them. They had control and they didn't want to lose it. Everyone revered them. They had all the money and the power and the respect. I mean, don't you hate when someone reigns on your parade? Don't you? You have control and someone's a threat to it? See, it's not just the Jewish religious leaders who love control. We all love control. Let me prove it to you. Kids, how do you feel when your parents correct you? When you're doing something and they say stop, you don't want to stop. You want to keep doing it. How do you feel? Your control is being threatened. Okay? Women, how do you feel the scripture says that you are to submit to your husbands? Well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? And to the unmarried, your future husbands. That's not very popular. Control is being threatened. Men, you aren't off the hook either. 
How about when your, your church leaders, your pastors say that scripture says you're to set apart every Sunday. It's the Lord's day and it belongs to him. How do you feel about that? You see, all of us, God put us, I include, me included, there are authorities over me. Right? We're all under authority. And God does it. And it is a serious threat to your individualistic, autonomous control of your life. And God intends that for your good. So it's not just the Jewish religious leaders. Just so we don't think it's just them that have this problem, we do too. Okay, let's take a closer look at this trial. Who's present at this trial? Look at verse 53 again. Who do we got? And they led Jesus to the high priest. Okay, the high priest is there. All the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Okay, this is everybody. This is just the, all the Jewish leaders have, have all come together. Okay, that's who's there. Now, how do they run their trial? If you know anything about trials, this is not how it's run. Okay, we're just going to look. I'm going to give you six things they did that were illegal. They, and it, you don't have to look very deep to figure out that they were not obeying any rule of law. First one, and this, this is true then, and a lot of these things are true now. But then it was illegal to have a trial during the night. Jesus was condemned between the hours of 1 and 3 a.m., Okay, not legal. Next thing, forbidden to execute on a feast day. The, this is Pharisaic law for the Pharisees of the law. No hearings on case of capital punishment could be heard on a feast day, on a day that's supposed to be a holy day. What are they doing? You know, it's on Passover. Not legal. Third way, how did Jesus even get there? It was the result of a bribe, blood money given to Judas, right? Also very illegal. You can't do that. Jesus, fourth, was asked to incriminate himself. Did you catch that? He asked him, are you the Christ? You aren't allowed to ask the person on trial to incriminate themselves. Fifth way, in cases of capital punishment, there has to be a space between the verdict and the sentencing. There at least has to be one day space between the verdict and the sentencing. They didn't do that. Same day, 1 to 3 a.m. on Friday before the day's over, he's crucified. They're breaking every... Oh, and then additionally, you can't have false witnesses. Yeah, you're supposed to just get witnesses. You don't just find people to say what you want because their whole goal was what? They hated Jesus and they wanted to kill him. So just so there's no, no misunderstanding, this was no real trial at all. This was all just a show to get them what they wanted. Okay, but it didn't work, did it? It was all falling apart. So the high priest jumps in, right? He goes at Jesus and he says, what's the deal? Right, look, there it is. Let's look at the verses. He says, let's find it. Verse 60, he says, he stood up in the midst of them. Have you no answer to make? Right, he's not happy. He said, come on, Jesus, you got to say something so we can condemn you. What does these men testify against you? I want you to pause for a second and let's, let's look at who is the high priest? Who are these people that have gathered? See, you mainly think of them as the bad guys because that's the way they are in the first century. But they aren't supposed to be. The priests were supposed to be the holiest men. Their main job was to help people connect to God. They sat in the middle between people and God and tried to bring them together. Matchmakers, right? Then the high priest was supposed to be the holiest of the holy men. If there's anyone who Jesus could have counted on to come to his aid, it should have been the high priest. Of course, it's not the case. So just so you understand, 
And so what, here he is. He's willing to do anything, and the Jewish religious leaders, do anything to accomplish their goal to see Jesus dead. Okay, let me turn it back to you. What are you willing to do to protect your control? What are you willing to do to protect your control? Are you willing to lie? Are you willing to manipulate? Complain? Kids, I don't know if you've ever seen other kids at Walmart throwing temper tantrums, right? Sometimes it works for them, doesn't it? They get the toy they want or they get whatever they want, right? And adults, we're far more sophisticated, aren't we? But we still throw temper tantrums because we don't get what we want. So whatever your method, look even a step further and say, what, are, what is it you're trying to control? Money, marriage, kids, career, what is it you're trying to control? Interesting to think about. They had a very clear thing they wanted to control. They wanted their power, and they didn't want it taken from them. The route is we don't want to take any either. But do we really have control? Did they have control? They didn't. The Jewish religious, they had absolutely no control. They were always in fear of losing control. There is something better for us and them, then living our lives desperately trying to maintain control, regain control, keep from losing control. It is trusting someone who actually has the control. You remember Brandon prayed, there's no like rogue molecules. God is actually in control and we are not. And so lots of people spend lots and lots of energy trying to control when they can't. Rather, we should probably let God, who is in control, trust him. You've probably heard the paradigm of orphan versus son. Have you heard that? Many of you did a Bible study in the missional communities and talked about that very thing, right? So an orphan, think about an orphan. They, they can only trust in themselves. They're the only ones that will worry about them to take care of themselves. They have no one that will look out for them, right? In contrast, a son has parents, right? Children, you know this. Your parents look after you. Are you scared of what you're going to eat for lunch or dinner today? No, because mom and dad have a pantry, right, and a refrigerator. But an orphan's not that way. The question is, do you live more like an orphan or a son or daughter of the king? What do you think? Think about that. Son or daughter or orphan. See, orphans must control because there's no one they can trust and you can, you can trust. Sadly and ironically, what we see in the Jewish religious leaders, there's some similarities with Peter, which brings us to our second point. Trusting Christ enables us to let go of self-protection. So we skipped over someone who was present. Look back. Verse 54. Who else was there? It was Peter, wasn't it? In verse 54, and Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. That's pretty gutsy, isn't it? And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Okay, so there he is. He's watching the whole trial in disbelief. I mean, can you imagine being Peter there and you're watching them interrogate Jesus and beat him? That'd just be horrific. He's watching the whole thing. What do you think his greatest fear is? Peter's sitting there. He doesn't want anyone to recognize him, right? He's hoping that I'll just blend in with the soldiers here. No one will know who I am. Well, of course, it doesn't last long, does it? Because someone does recognize him. Now, he could have said he, was, he had this split-second decision, right? All of a sudden, she said, wait, you're one of them. So then he has to say, real quick decide, what am I going to say? He could have said, yes, and you should be too. Couldn't he have said that? He could have said, 
Jesus foretold that he would die, but he's going to rise again. If you will believe in him, you can be saved too. He should have said that to the servant girl. But he didn't. You see, that would have put him at risk of him being on trial. He wanted to save his own skin, right? And so he lied and lied and lied. He lied three times. Let's look at those verses. So look, this is 68. So first he just says, I don't know what you, what you mean. And then he, but then he goes on. Look as he goes on. He actually calls on a curse on himself. Do you see that? Let me find it here. Verse 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man to whom you speak. That's crazy, isn't it? That Peter is invoking a curse on himself. Fear is a powerful, powerful thing. I mean, this moment of weakness, Peter faltered. I mean, his name means rock or stone. He crumbled under the pressure at this moment. What was driving his actions? Likely self-preservation. He didn't want to die that day. If we did a brain scan of his head that day, there would have been a lot of activity, right? It would have been darting all around, trying to figure out, what do I say? Because I don't want to die. Kids, are you ever tempted to lie? Are you ever tempted to lie? If you say no, then you're lying to me now. (laughs) Because all of us have been tempted to lie. All of us probably have lied, me included. When when are you tempted to lie? Often it's because you don't want to get in trouble right? Self-preservation. Now, you aren't fearing for your life. You may be fearing getting in trouble or being caught for doing something. It's, it's something we all face. Peter faced that just like you face it, the temptation to lie. So let's look back, step back again. Jewish religious leaders, they're desperate to maintain control to prevent from losing power. Peter is desperate to maintain his safety and prevent from losing his life. They both have something they're motivated by. Peter, too, is operating like an orphan, isn't he? He didn't understand at this point that following Christ meant taking great risks. Have you heard of the missionary Jim Elliott? It's a really cool story if you haven't heard it. Jim Elliott in the 1950s, so he's a missionary, and he goes to this dangerous tribe, and he goes there, and he gets speared by them. He risks his life. He and four others get killed as a missionary to these people. This was in 1956. Seven years prior to that, he wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is very similar to Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peter was a fool that day, wasn't he? He couldn't lose his salvation. He did not take any risk and yet denied his very Savior. You remember back the Jesus walking on water? Peter was there for that. You remember that? Peter is the only mere human who's ever walked on water. I mean, you imagine? I mean, he was in a boat and here's Jesus walking on the water and he says, can I come to you? And he stepped out. It would be just as crazy as me stepping off the stage. Water does not hold humans, except that moment, that day. So he's walking out to Jesus, but he takes his eyes off Jesus, and what does he look at? The wind and the waves. He begins to sink. He calls out. Here's the verse. 
It's from Matthew 14. And when he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid. He began to sink and cry out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And pulled him up. He didn't sink. This time he had lost sight of Jesus, didn't he? He lost sight of Jesus. Listen to the verse again in 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man to whom you speak. That same Jesus who pulled him out of the water. Look what happens next. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You better believe he broke down and wept. You know, in a parallel account in Luke 22, it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, that before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He went away and wept bitterly. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, Jesus locks eyes with Peter. I mean, his face is probably already swelling from being punched in the face. And he locks eyes as a rooster's crowing. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, this is by far the lowest point of Peter's life. He's just denied his Lord and he's looking him in the eyes. I cannot imagine that moment. He goes out and he weeps, weeps bitterly. Do you know who the primary source for Mark's gospel was? We've said this a few times as we've gone through. It was Peter. Peter was the primary source. Mark wasn't there. Mark was not a, one of the 12. Peter told Mark the story, this story, his lowest point. Remember I've said recently in a sermon that um, uh, failing utterly can be very, very helpful. It's a great moment. It's not comfortable. It's not enjoyable and no one wants it. But it is very instructive. There is nothing like a good failure to get your attention. It did for Peter that day. You also see the Bible is a very honest book. I mean, brothers and sisters, do you realize that your heroes are cowards, failures, and a disgrace to your Lord? It's true. You find me one biblical character that didn't fail. Peter surely did. How do you feel about that? I think it can actually be encouraging to you in this way because I too have been a coward at times. Haven't you shrunk back from what you should say? Haven't you said things that you never should say because you were a coward? Whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's with your neighbors, we've all done it. We can relate with Peter. Fear is a powerful motivator to lie or to not say things that we should. But so is faith. Faith is also a powerful motivator. It was for Jim Elliott and many other believers who have stopped being driven by self-preservation. Kids, you do not need to live for self-preservation. You can tell the truth even if it gets you in trouble. You can do it. Start now. Now is the time that you decide that I will be a truth teller and not a liar. But we do it as adults. We do too when we're silent, when we know that God wants us to speak. Oh, that we could be free from the powerful drive to self-preservation. Which brings us to our third point. Trusting Christ enables us to have Christ's eternal perspective. There's one more character we've missed, right? It's Christ himself. Let's look back at him. We've already looked at his trial, his trial, that was anything but fair. We've already looked at his trial, that was anything but fair. 
this was like the pinnacle. I mean, apart from the actual crucifixion, this is the pinnacle of evil. The people whose very job it was to show love and respect and honor were here condemning him to die. And you can even imagine the Father in heaven watching this all. I mean, not only does Jesus hold it together, because you remember, nothing's holding him there. I mean, he could end the whole thing at any moment, right? Call down the legion of angels. He doesn't. Why did he not? Because he loves you and me. You must not miss that fact. Because of his love for you and me, Jesus went through all this. The Father didn't stop it either because of his love for you. It says elsewhere, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So don't miss that. All right, but let's look more. Now think about how, what about every other interaction Jesus had with the the Jewish religious leaders? How did those go? How did every other time they attack him? He fought fire with fire, didn't he? I mean, you look through, I mean, you think back through the whole gospel. When they show up, he shows up, right? So you might expect him to take control of this situation, but he doesn't. That's what's so strange. It's all changed now. Jesus is strangely silent, isn't he? They're falsely accusing him. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call them a brood of vipers. He doesn't say anything at all. He stands silent. Silent. Silence is a hard thing. Silent. When falsely accused. In that moment, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. This is speaking of Christ. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Your Lord is unbelievable. Why? I mean, you just, I mean, if if we were there, we would be crying out. I'm sure Peter was. Like, Jesus, say something. Say anything. Defend yourself. Stand up for yourself. But he didn't. He just stood there and took it. It's unbelievable. Jesus didn't try to control the situation. He wasn't driven by self-preservation like Peter was. Look at those verses again, 61 and 62. But he remained silent and made no answer. Oh, but then the high priest is now really furious. It says he asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, meaning the son of God? In the parallel gospel, he actually puts him under oath and says, I adjure you in the name of God. And Jesus said, I am. Okay, Jesus, if you want to make it out, out alive of this, that's not really the thing to say. But that wasn't his goal, was it? I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, what's that all about? You remember from our call to worship? It said that. He's coming. When is he going to come on the clouds? The second coming, right? So Jesus fast forwards in his statement from here, this is right before his crucifixion, to crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, the whole church age, which we're still in, all the way to the second coming, the very, very end. And he says, I'm going to come back and you're going to see me on the clouds. What will he do? You remember the call to worship? What will he do when he comes on the clouds? Judge. He will judge. It said those who even pierced him. Remember that in Revelation? We read that? He will come and judge those very men who then were condemning him. You see, the tables will turn. And Jesus was making this clear. But it was not his time to defend himself. This was his time of humiliation. His whole life, 
He had known that he was to die. He knew that he was to die. First Peter is extremely helpful here. First Peter 2. Okay, so First P- Peter is going to talk about, oh, who, who do you think wrote First Peter? Kids, I bet you can guess. But if when you go, if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, which is true of Christ. But for in this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, listen, he did not revile in return. That's what happened in this, what we just read. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but here's the punchline, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, in that day, that moment, was entrusting himself to the Father. You and I can entrust ourselves to the Father. This is the way you suffer well. When your boss isn't treating you right, when your neighbors call you crazy because you're a Christian, you can suffer because Christ left you an example. He did not just try to preserve his own life or try to control the situation. Jesus didn't need their approval. Do you remember back at his baptism? What happened? What happened at his baptism? The heavens opened and he heard what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He had the father's approval. Do you have the father's approval? Do you have the father's approval? If you are a believer, I can assure you from scripture that you have your father's approval. He is delighted in you. You need no one else's approval. But the fathers, you have his approval. Jesus had it. It enabled him to go through and be ridiculed and mistreated by everybody. Is it fun? No. Many of you have experienced this. It is not fun for someone not to like you. But you can. Remember back to an orphan or a son. You are a son. Trusting Christ enables you to have an eternal perspective. You too can look all the way to the second coming. To say you can, you can say whatever you want about me now. But Christ will come back and you will be falling on your knees before him, whether as a child or as an enemy, right? And so we all want to fall. If you haven't, just hear me. If you are not, if you've not fallen before Christ and humbly let him be your Lord, I highly recommend you do. You just read that call to worship. If that doesn't strike fear in you, you are not listening. Christ is coming back and we all want to be ready. Okay, so go back to it. The, see, in the end, First Peter, again Peter, says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You will be glorified. You'll be exalted in the end. So I hope you've seen this morning that trying to control everything around you is a bad idea. And self-preservation. Okay, we have a continuum. On the one hand, we have the Jewish religious leaders. They want power and control. On the other, Peter just doesn't want to die. Okay, you're somewhere between those two. You're probably not at either extreme, right? But we want to control things around us, whether it's in fear or whether it's in we just like controlling things. On either side, I want you to think about it. You can't apply this if you don't think about it. What does control look like in your life? What is it you're trying to control? Kids, you are not, you're not off, off the hook from this, right? You too want to control. We all do. As we close this morning, I want to tell you a much happier story. A story about, from the book of Acts. Acts 5. This is a story, a real high point. Listen to this. Okay, so you're going to see a lot of parallels. 
It says, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the sin of the people of Israel. Exact parallel, right? Yet all the Jewish religious leaders have gathered again and they aren't happy because the apostles are teaching. Um, And when they brought them, the apostles, they set them before the council, exactly like Jesus, okay? Them in the center and all the Jewish religious surrounding him. The high priest questioned him, same thing, saying, we strictly charged you not to preach in this name, being of Christ, yet here you are filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That had to be intimidating. Is that not exactly parallel what Jesus experienced? Okay, let's see how this story turns out. But the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That takes a lot of guts to say. It says, we don't care all of what all of you think, we're going to obey God. The God of our fathers who raised Jesus, whom you killed. Okay, those are fighting words by hanging him on a tree. You see what they just said? They said, we don't care what you say. And by the way, the blood of Christ is on your hands. Wow. If only Peter had that courage. If only Peter had the courage to stand up. He failed utterly, didn't he? Thankfully, we have this other example, some apostles who actually stand up for truth. In a parallel, do you see the parallel situation? Isn't that cool? Someone else did much. Wait a second. Wait a second. You might not be familiar with that story. I left out two key words. You want to know the two key words? The two key words were right there before they said that. Verse 29 of Acts 5. But Peter, but Peter and the apostles said to them, we will obey God rather than men. Isn't that cool? It was Peter. This was a whole different day. You see, Peter was a coward, but he was no longer. Some of you are still cowards, but your story is not over. Neither was Peter's. Peter's story was not over. There was another day in which you think he had parallel, and he was having flashbacks. All the councils gathered around, and he stood. Isn't that awesome? Your story is not over. Your story is not over. Let's pray. Father, we're all cowards at some moment. We all get scared. We all want to save our skin. We don't want to get in trouble, whether it's adults or kids. We say half-truths, lies, we're silent when we know we're supposed to say something to our neighbors. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Thank you that through all this, you are winning our salvation, that I will never have to pay the price for the times I've been a coward. And neither will they if they but believe in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring all this to win our salvation. Lord, I pray that there would be another day for all of us, as there was for Peter, that his story did not end here. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that we would trust in Christ, that we'd have his perspective on eternity and not just this moment. Thank you, Lord, so much for this very honest account of a very sad and dark day that you could encourage us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.